Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do. Please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, this is found on page 1178 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to look on there. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 24 through 29 this morning, which begins a new section in our study of Christ above all from the book of Colossians. And as you're turning there this morning, I would like to ask you this question, what is the greatest threat to the church today? Ask yourself this question, what is the greatest threat to the church, the American church, and even our church today? Some people would say that it's health regulations, or government intrusion, or political affiliation. Others might say that it's increasing cultural secularization or humanism or racism that we see around ourselves. Well, I want you to consider this morning that the greatest threat to the church today is not the world, it's ourselves. That the greatest threat to the church is not external, it's internal. The greatest threat to the church today, I would contend, is false spiritual leadership. Do you recall Paul reminded the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 verses 29 through 31 that for three years he did not cease to exhort them and warn them and admonish every one of them with tears. Why? Because he knew that as a church they were facing a great threat. And what was that threat? That after his departure, Paul says, fierce wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. From among their own selves would arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so Paul warned them and urged them one final time with everything he had to be alert to the greatest threat ever facing churches, false spiritual leaders. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 5 through 8, Paul again warns that in the last days there will come days of difficulties for churches where false professors, those who have an outward form of godliness but are devoid of any of its power, devoid of an inward reality, will nevertheless attempt to oppose the truth and lead believers astray. Paul said that they would be like Janus and Jambres, corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. And he says, avoid such people. The greatest threat to believers in the church is false spiritual leaders. And that's why these are the very people that Christ condemned most fervently during his earthly ministry here on earth. He warned the crowds in Matthew 23, specifically regarding the Pharisees, but more generally watching out for false spiritual leaders to beware of those who preach, Jesus says, but do not practice, who say one thing, but do another, who work hard to become spiritual leaders, even crossing the seas, and yet they possess no spiritual reality to offer anyone, who work really hard to make it look like they are in the kingdom of God when they are not, and indeed they keep others from entering into it also. Jesus said they're like whitewashed tombs. They look really good on the outside, but inward they are full of filth and spiritual death and decay. They pretend to be honest men, but they are filled to the brim with hypocrisy and pride. Jesus said, beware such people. They are the greatest threat to the church. 
Well, by the time this letter of Colossians was written, that threat had become a reality. They had certain people that had crept into the Colossian church and were setting themselves up as self-appointed false spiritual leaders. And being devoid of the truth of Jesus Christ, these self-appointed false teachers were spreading confusion among the Colossian believers by sharing messages of vain philosophy, empty deceit, and that were coming from their own puffed-up minds. Claiming to be gospel teachers, what these men were teaching was not at all the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. They were teaching a Jesus plus gospel. Jesus plus having private revelations. Jesus plus having mystical experiences. Jesus plus having an external, extra-biblical morality. They had ministries that diminished the person and work of Jesus Christ, just like it is today. There's no church that would ever say, I'm not preaching the gospel. But if you compare what they're teaching to what the Bible reveals, they are not teaching the saving gospel at all. They might be talking about the gospel, but not everybody's preaching it. So it was in Paul days, so it also is in ours. The greatest threat to the church today, I would summarize it as this, is ministries and ministers that do not exalt the Lord Jesus Christ above all that do not hold fast to him as the head, as the life, and as the hope of us all. Well, Paul, out of a burden to see the Colossian believers not be led astray by false doctrine and indeed grow in their maturity in Christ, he lays out in our passage before us today six marks of true gospel ministry. Six marks, you could say, of what a true Christ-exalting ministry and church looks like that we might he teaches this that we might rediscover reapply and indeed judge all other ministries according to these six standards so what does a ministry that believes in the supremacy and sufficiency of jesus christ and all things look like what does a true gospel ministry look like it looks like these six marks we'll go through them one at a time in verse 24 we're going to look at the atmosphere of gospel ministry then in verses 25 through 26, the authority of gospel ministry. Next, in verse 27, we'll look at the awe of gospel ministry. At the beginning of verse 28, the approach of gospel ministry. At the end of verse 28, the aim of gospel ministry. And finally, in verse 29, the ability of gospel ministry. So how do you identify in this world where everybody's saying, I preach the gospel, listen to me, I have the truth. How do you identify a true ministry that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of Jesus Christ above all else? It will be a ministry that possesses the atmosphere, the authority, the awe, the approach, the aim, and the ability that belongs to gospel ministry. This is how you identify a Christ-exalting ministry. So with that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of God that does not put us to shame when our hearts are blameless in his statutes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the supreme one who has done a sufficient work. We thank you that because of his greatness, we receive from him great goodness and salvation and mercy. Father, we have gathered together this morning because by your grace our eyes have been opened to your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We know who he is. We know what he is worthy of. Even as the songs led us in their very words to the point of reminding us that Jesus Christ is to be preeminent above all. Father, I pray that you would teach us this morning from your word what a life that's lived for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ alone really looks like. Help us to learn from the Apostle Paul's ministry. Help us to shape our own lives according to the truths that shaped his. That we might live in this world as salt and as light as Christians, followers of Christ. By your grace, I pray that your spirit would accompany the teaching of your word at this hour, that we might walk in a manner more more worthy of our calling. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in his desire to equip believers with the ability to discern True Christ-exalting ministries, Paul begins in an unusual way here by describing first the atmosphere of gospel ministry. That is in verse 24. Paul writes this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So Paul here is saying that the moment I entered into gospel ministry was the moment that I entered into suffering. The moment that I began to exalt Jesus Christ above all was the moment that I began to experience pain beyond all my expectations. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 27, briefly describes for us the sufferings that Paul encountered as he exalted Christ among the nations. There in that passage, Paul recounts, I have experienced far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was drift at sea on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. See, Paul experienced overwhelming nearly incomprehensible suffering. And yet, what was Paul's attitude as we see in this verse, in light of all of that? Was Paul's attitude, I can't take it anymore. I am so tired of all the suffering that I'm having to go through. Is that his attitude? No. Why? Because he held Christ above all. Paul says to the Colossians, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because all these sufferings, he says, are for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. Notice, Paul says that he rejoices because his sufferings benefits other believers, right? He says it is for your sake. It's for the sake of, the, of Christ's body that is the church. Paul, because of Paul's suffering, other believers were ending up better off. Paul rejoiced because his individual suffering benefited the entire church of Christ. How? He says, because in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Now, that one phrase is probably one of Paul's statements that caused Peter to say in 2 Peter 3.16, Paul says some things that are hard to understand. This is probably one of them. (laughs) Um, And after a good amount of studying this week, I want to explain what Paul means here as simply as possible for you, because it really is a very powerful truth when we come to understand it. First, let me tell you what Paul does not mean when he says this. Paul does not mean that Christ's death on the cross was somehow lacking in in its ability to save sinners. If that was true, Paul would be contradicting everything that he has just been saying in the previous verses, verses 20 through 23, particularly if you look back at verse 22, where Paul says that by Christ alone we are presented holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. And again in verse 20, he says that we are completely reconciled to God by the blood of his cross. Our supreme Christ has done a sufficient work. His shed blood is all that is needed to reconcile all things, to forgive all trespasses, and to impart all righteousness to all who call on him in faith. So Paul's not undoing in verse 24 everything that he's been saying in verse 20 through 23. So what is Paul saying? As simply as possible, this is what Paul means. Paul is telling the Colossian believers, I rejoice in my suffering because when I suffer, I am suffering in your place and I'm suffering in the place of Christ himself. I am taking his sufferings, Paul says, 
for your sake, and in that I rejoice. This is what Paul meant by this unusual expression, and by the way, we know this because over in his sister letter to the Philippians, Paul uses this exact same word and expression. Near the end of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is recounting how the Philippians delivered a financial gift to Paul at the hand of one of their members who is named Epaphroditus. And in Philippians 2, 29 through 30, Paul says this, So receive him, that is, receive Epaphroditus, in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life, and here it is, to complete or to fill up what was lacking in your service for me. So think about it. The Philippians had gathered together a financial gift for Paul. So what was still lacking in their service of him that Epaphroditus had to fulfill? It was to deliver that financial gift to Paul. How? In person. And that's what Epaphroditus did in Philippians. He filled up what was lacking by personally representing the Philippian church before Paul. What was lacking, listen, what was lacking was the presence of the church. Epaphroditus filled up that lacking presence. He filled up what was lacking by standing in their place. So when Paul says here that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's saying, I am taking Christ's place in receiving his afflictions, and I'm doing this on your behalf. I'm taking the afflictions that are intended for Jesus. See, the world hates Christ. We just saw this in our previous passage in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. That apart from Christ, outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ, we are hostile in our minds towards Jesus because we love the darkness of our own evil deeds. We are set at enmity with God. And because Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of God and his presence is lacking here on earth, the world then turns its hatred where? To the only ones that are left. To those who represent Jesus. To those who stand in his place. To those who proclaim his name. As Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Since the world cannot strike Christ anymore, they'll turn their hatred towards his body, the church. As Paul says elsewhere, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and so paul a gospel minister says to the colossian believers here in verse 24 he says listen i rejoice because my suffering is for your sake it's absorbing some of that hatred that the world has for christ for you as i stand out in front and i take the blows intended for christ paul says i'm sparing you and i'm suffering with christ and in that how can i do anything less but rejoice This is the atmosphere of true gospel ministry, ladies and gentlemen. It is rejoicing in suffering for the sake of Christ and his people. Just as Jesus joyfully took the weight of suffering for his bride and his beloved, and just as a husband ought to rightly take, joyfully take the weight of suffering for his wife, so also a true gospel minister appointed by God joyfully takes the weight of suffering for the rest of the church. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 
28 through 29, he says, apart from all those other things that I listed earlier, right, shipwrecks, beatings, all those things, he says, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? You see, a faithful minister joyfully bears their burdens, joyfully takes their pains, joyfully takes their sorrows, and sometimes, as Paul would become an example of, even sometimes joyfully takes their sufferings. So think of the Reformation, right? Or even persecution that's happening around the globe today. Who's often the very first among the congregation that's silenced, that's arrested, that's thrown in jail, or that's burned at the stake? Study history. It's the pastors. It's the ministers. It's the elders of the church. And a true gospel minister does not sit there and say, I can't believe it. What a horrible job. (laughs) A true gospel minister looks at that reality in the face and says, why would I want to do anything else than to take all of that for the sake of Christ and the sake of his beloved? As a servant, a true gospel minister rejoices in that truth. He has the same mindset of Paul. Jesus took the blows that were meant for me, I'll gladly take the blows that were meant for him and for his people, the body of the church. So this is how you recognize a life and a ministry that truly exalts the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be found rejoicing in suffering. They will be marked by the passion of Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, which says this, whether by life or by death, Christ will be honored in my body and in that I rejoice that in all things, as Colossians 1.18 says, he might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. So this is the first distinguishing characteristic of a Christ-exalting ministry. It's the atmosphere of rejoicing in suffering for the sake of Christ and his body. I'll admit, this first mark of gospel ministry has been difficult to see in America in the past. But I believe it will become easier to see in the days to come. It will become easier to see that true gospel ministry is always marked by an atmosphere of rejoicing and suffering for Christ and for his flock. It's always been that way among true gospel ministers. They have that daily pressure on them from the churches. They care for those that are under their flock. They bring those burdens before the Lord. They weep with those who weep. They rejoice with those who rejoice But by and large, it's been relatively peaceful for Christians in America, frankly, because if you look at it, our brothers and sisters around the world have been in the place of Paul. They have been filling up the afflictions of Christ for our sake. Soon it may become our turn to take their place and to at last fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for their sake. If that moment comes, I want you all to know, members of Grace Chapel, in this we ought to rejoice. We ought to rejoice. That we may know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death. So how do you identify a true Christ-exalting ministry? First, it bears the atmosphere of gospel ministry, one of rejoicing in the sufferings of Christ. Now, I was originally going to move right on in this passage and to the next point, but I think it would behoove me as your pastor to pause at this moment. Because I recognize something. 
that there are many people in this congregation going through a season of pain that in ways is heightened by this whole pandemic. And as your pastor, my concern is to take the time this morning and apply the truths of the verse, just one verse, the one verse that we saw, and apply them as directly, as effectively as possible to our lives. And so from this verse, I want to give you three statements of encouragement regarding the nature of pain in a believer's life, and then we'll end with this. So three statements of encouragement regarding pain that is true if you are in Christ. First, I want you to know that if you're in Christ, your pain, and I put it this way, has a ministerial purpose. Your pain has a ministerial purpose. I want you to notice in our verse, verse 24, that Paul, when he's describing the sufferings that he was going through for Christ, he does not describe those sufferings as obstacles, but rather as opportunities. Paul recognizes that what he was going through was for the benefit of the body of Christ. It is for your sake, he says. It's similar to what Paul says over in Philippians 1 verse 12 when he says, What has happened to me has really helped to serve, advance the gospel. Paul's pain was not an obstacle to his ministry. It was an opportunity. I want to remind you this morning, believer, Grace Chapel, so it is with you. Believer, your pain is a part of your ministry. Your trial, your hardship, and your suffering, it is not a stumbling stone. It is a stepping stone in your purpose to glorify God greater in your life. As much as you, and so I want to encourage you this morning, as much as you pray to be free of your pain, I want to encourage you to pray to be effective in your pain. Because you have opportunities for ministry right now in your hurt that you will never have in your healing. Opportunities for evangelism, opportunities for discipleship, opportunities to demonstrate genuine, supernatural, saving faith that holds on to God and to his promises, even when life doesn't make sense. Do not waste the opportunity that God has given you Recognize that pain is part of your ministry. It has a ministerial purpose. Keep your eyes fixed on that, believer. The second truth I want to share with you about pain is that in Christ, your pain has a redemptive payoff. It has a redemptive payoff. Paul says here that when he suffered, he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. I love that expression, filling up. Because when you fill up a cup, what happens? There's eventually the point where the cup is what? Filled, right? In other words, just as there are a set number of people who will believe in Christ, there is a set number of afflictions, I believe Paul is teaching here, that will be endured for Christ. And Paul saw his suffering as filling that up in the place of others. He recognized that his suffering was not individualistic, It was part of a corporate experience that all believers go through, an experience that will one day, listen to me, be filled up. I want you to know, believer, this morning that there is not one pain you experience here in this life that will ever fall to the ground empty and without purpose. Psalms 56 verse 8 says this, 
you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not all in your book? See, one day that ledger that God is keeping, that bottle, that book will be filled with room for no more tossings, no more tears, no more pain for the people of God. Our pain is building up to a redemptive payoff when the prayer of the saints described in Revelation, how long, O Lord, faithful and true, will at last be answered. And as Jesus describes in Luke 18, God will bring justice speedily to his elect and the Son of Man will come. Beloved, I want you to know that every pain you're experiencing is building up to a redemptive payoff. It's one more tear in the bottle. It's a bottle that will one day be filled to a glorious redemptive payoff for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Your pain is a redemptive payoff. So keep your eyes fixed on that, believer. In the midst of pain, keep your eyes fixed that your pain has a ministerial purpose. Your pain has a redemptive payoff. And third, I want you to know this morning that your pain has a hopeful presence. Because we don't have to go through this alone. We don't have to deal with pain by ourselves. I want you to know that in this passage, verse 24, Paul not only knew that when he suffered, his suffering was in Christ's place, he also knew that his suffering was in Christ's presence. As Paul is going to say later on in verse 27, and I can't wait to get to that verse, Paul is going to say that to be in Christ means that Christ is in you, and when Christ is in you, that is a hope of glory. And therefore, in all of his suffering, Paul knew that he was never alone. He knew he was never alone. As Paul testified to Timothy later in 2 Timothy 4.17, he said, The Lord stood with me, and he gave me strength. Yes, the Lord will indeed rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Therefore, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He is with me in the pain. Paul knew he was never alone, and he would... Never be alone. He had Christ in him, the hope of glory. Beloved, I want to encourage you this morning that your pain has that same hopeful presence as well. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Christ, believer, in the midst of your pain, you might be in pain, but Christ is in you. Christ is in you. And I want you to know also, that Christ is not only in you, but he is in all believers. In the midst of pain, you not only have the hopeful presence of Christ, you have the hopeful presence of all of Christ's people with you. Your pain has a hopeful presence. So believer, I wanted to leave you with that. as pastoral encouragement this morning. A little bit less than the preaching that I normally do. As you strive to exalt Christ above all, and inevitably face sufferings because of it. I want you to remember now, learn it now. Just like Paul, your pain has a ministerial purpose. Keep your eyes fixed on that. Your pain has a redemptive purpose. Payoff, keep your eyes fixed on that. And your pain has a hopeful presence. Keep your eyes fixed on him. This is the atmosphere of a true Christ-exalting ministry. 
And this is the word of God from Colossians 1.24, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word today. We thank you that in Christ, he, <laughs> he gives us a hope of glory. Father, we thank you that Christ is worthy. And we see that with Paul. That no matter what we might face in this life, oh, to one day be delivered into your kingdom and to see Christ at last, to see him who shed his blood for us, that will be glory for me. So, Father, we pray that as we, as we seek to exalt Jesus Christ, we do not live in ignorance. We know pain will come. We live in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people, dealing with fallenness in our own flesh. But Father, we thank you for the truth that each pain has a purpose. Our pain has a payoff. And our pain has a person who walks with us and indeed has walked ahead of us already. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. Exalt him, worship him, glorify him, and suffer with him for his name's sake. May we be found faithful as a church at his coming. We ask this in Jesus' name.